we acknowledge the Wadjuk people and the wider Noongar community on whose country we conduct our ceremonies and uh, do our zazen uh, tonight. May the voice of the Buddha uh, be present in uh, words and activities of our dojo tonight. This is a talk in the series on Zen and the Passions, and the title of the talk is Power. There is a story of a woman in the, I think in the 16th century, uh, who rather than uh, marrying, uh, wanted to become a nun. And on being asked why, uh, she was making that choice, she said, um, I want to nurture the unknown. Uh, this is very, very beautiful. Uh, what is it to nurture the unknown? It sounds so much like Zazen. Uh, you're here to nurture the unknown. How do you do that? Uh, well, breathing out. Breathing in. Uh, as with Zen in its other aspects, not only do you nurture the unknown, but you are nurtured likewise. Uh, how are you nurtured by the unknown? Waves thumping on an abandoned beach. Uh, the night sky tall with stars. Some nourishment, all right. And candlelight, traffic sound. Voices, voices. Uh, so power. Uh, I, I was born in 1946, so I was in the shadow of that vast and engulfing catastrophe that was the Second World War. The bombing of London, the firebombing of Dresden, and ultimately the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The loss of uh, 105,000 lives, 95,000 maimed and injured, and not forgetting the countless deaths down the generation from radiation-induced cancers. In the early, in these first 20 or so years of the 21st century, it's easy to feel that we've advanced to the point of doing much better than this, which is to say that insofar as we still have wars, they're not on the scale of the world wars of the last century. And in some measure there's less indiscriminate killing of civilians. 
However, if you're living in Ukraine right now, you could be forgiven for feeling that nothing much has changed, given Putin's unprovoked aggression against uh, civilians, both those trying to flee the conflict as well as those who are courageously resisting the ruthless invasion of their homeland. Yeah, like having your life torn up by the roots. It's sometimes said that uh, authority is granted and power is taken. Uh, and I think power that is taken, because uh, I think power has many faces, but power that is taken is surely an aspect of greed, um, the first of the three poisons. At the end of our evening service, we recite the four, um, the great vows for all. Um, and the second of these is greed, hatred and ignorance arise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. So I guess one fundamental question is how? Do we abandon them? There have been many accounts over the years. Uh, I vow to... It escapes me at the moment. Abandon them is the most, probably the most recent. What are the, how, what's the earlier forms of the um, great vows for all? Cut them off, that's the one. Yeah, so that's changed um, in, in Zen culture in the West um, in very interesting ways. But it's a good fundamental question. You know, there must be something godlike about the power to be able to shape reality. I'm talking about power. Um, to create and destroy national leaders and subvert the democratic will. In economic terms, through the entitlement that wealth and power bring, you may also get to live and to deal at a vast distance from the tragedies that, um, well, imagining it as myself, that I create or you create. Um, I used to wonder if the urge to power grows from a childhood starved of love. It's interesting to reflect on what the, the roots of power, which... I guess like other aspects of greed, um, grow immeasurably and seem to be self-feeding. Um, yeah. Self-justifying. Uh, there's something self-justifying about power. The impulse to conquer and control created the great empires of Rome, Macedonia, Austro-Hungary, uh, Portugal, Spain, Britain, France, China, and Russia. Uh, um, reading this morning uh, about accounts of the actual conflict, which, at least on one account, is not so much uh, 
autocracy versus democracy, but rather a, a notion of blood um, where Russian culture is completely remote from Western uh, culture, as in this particular picture. And the Russian Orthodox Church, and it's, has, with its long history of supporting the Tsars, has been co-opted by Putin to portray Russia as a radically different civilization to the West um, and draws on the notion of the ancient notion of the three Romes, Rome itself, Constantinople and Moscow. And, uh, so there's a very complex co-opting of religion into this uh, picture. Um, and Buddhism likewise uh, has over history had a problematic relation with imperial power itself um, and beginning with the Buddha uh, himself so what I've done is just to take uh, a little snapshot of the Buddhist life in these terms from when he was in his 70s and this comes from a, um, a little essay on the internet by Dr. Alexander Berzinge, um, Buddha and the political events of his time. I won't comment on it because it's very complex, but it gives a picture which is very uh, interesting about relationship um, between, um, yeah, absolutely seminal and great teacher and the political surrounding in which uh, he lived. The Kosala king Pasanadi first met Gautama Buddha at Jatis Grove when the Buddha was about 40 years old. The Buddha greatly impressed the king and subsequently Pasanadi also became one of his patrons and followers. Buddha's relation with King Pasanadi, however, was always very delicate. Although the king was an intellectual patron of learning, nevertheless he was also a sensualist and often very cruel. The Buddha, however, tolerated the king's erratic ways and changing fortunes, undoubtedly because he needed his protection, needed protection for his community against thieves and wild animals, as well as access to wealthy patrons who would support the Sangha. During King Pasanadi's visit to the Buddha to pay his respects, General Karayana staged a coup and sent Prince Vidadaba on the Kasala throne. The deposed King Pasanadi, having nowhere to turn, fled to Magadha to seek protection from his nephew and son-in-law, King Ajatasattu in Rajagaha. Pasanadi, however, was refused entry into the city and was found dead the next day. Meanwhile, the new Kosala King Vidadaba launched a war against Sakya, which is where the Sakya clan was uh, uh, Buddha's um, uh, home clan um, and his father was the, the king there. Rather he was the leader, not the king. So Vidadaba launched a war against Sakya, Sakya in revenge for his grandfather Mananama's deception about his bloodline. Mananama was Buddha's cousin and the current governor of Sakya. Although Buddha tried three times to convince the king not to attack, he was ultimately unsuccessful. And you have that scene which has come down to us through history. The sorrow of the Buddha 
sitting on the roadside and watching the troops march, um, which for me has always felt like a, a powerful and seminal moment that, you know, in the sense that he gave the advice um, three times, if you will, uh, saying that this, 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 was, this was wrong um, and the karmic consequences of this be severe. But then finally, um, he sat on the roadside and watched the troops uh, march. When King Pasanadi lost in battle to his nephew and had to retreat to his capital at Savati, the Buddha commented to his disciple that neither the victor nor the defeated would experience peace. He said, victory breeds hatred, the defeated live in pain, the peaceful live happily, giving up on victory and defeat. In a later battle, the two kings fought again, and King Kosala not only won, but captured his nephew, uh, Ajatasattu, alive with all his elephants, chariots, horses, and soldiers. King Kosala thought that he would release the young king, but not his horses, elephants, and other. He wanted the satisfaction of keeping these material possessions as the prizes of victory. On hearing this, the Buddha told his disciple that it would have been wiser for King Kosala not to have kept anything for himself. He said, a man may plunder as he will. When others plunder in return, he who has been plundered will plunder in return. The wheel of deeds turns round and makes the ones who are plundered plunderers. Yeah, this is the iron law of karma. Uh, on, on this, um, there's a story um, which comes from the transmission of the light. Um, a series of transmission stories uh, gathered and commented upon by Kezan uh, in the uh, 14th century in Japan. This one concerns the, the 19th and the 20th ancestors. Uh, one day, the 19th ancestor, Kumra Lubda Arya, taught Chayata, his student, saying, Although you believe in the three kinds of karma, it is still not clear to you that karma is born of delusion. Delusion comes into existence because of consciousness. Consciousness depends on non-realisation and non-realisation comes from the mind. The three kinds of karma. Uh, the first is where karmic consequence comes within this lifetime. Uh, the second is when it comes in the next. Uh, the third uh, kind of karma is when it comes in the third or the subsequent uh, lifetime. Kumura Labda went on. Mind is pure and clear from the beginning. There's two kinds of minds here. The last section ends with non-realisation comes from the mind. Uh, small M in this case. Capital M. Mind is pure and clear from the beginning. 
In this mind there is no life or death, no doing or reaction to doing, no victory or defeat. It is solitary and exquisite. If you enter this Dharma gate, you are the same as Buddha. So, at this very moment, how are you the same as Buddha? In this Dharma gate, how are you that? The teacher went on, all good and bad, all doing and non-doing will be just a dream or a vision. Jayata, on hearing this, understood the meaning of the teaching and attained the wisdom about past lives. He also attained the wisdom about just this right here. Warm this evening. The lights are reflected in the windows. Traffic is neither near nor far. So very closely related to power is the notion of control. And I think technological developments I don't know where you would start since the Industrial Revolution, have sharpened our sense that we are in control. It provides us with the illusion that we are somehow um, immune, I think, to natural uh, consequence. Uh, Certainly it's played out like that with our responses to climate warming, for instance with huge fires and floods have given the lie to the fact that somehow magically uh, we actually control what happens. We so clearly don't in so many areas. Uh, The pandemic also likewise. I I can never forget a marvellous scene where flights were cancelled Um, I think from London to New York because there were volcanoes erupting in Iceland. This is on television and people were being interviewed. They'd been in the airport for a couple of days. And one gentleman was asked and he said, I'm very, very frustrated. I need to be in New York by 10 o'clock. And somehow that sums up the human attitude, you know. It's like... How dare those volcanoes erupt in Iceland? You know, I've got an appointment in New York. Um, Yeah, that kind of thing. And um, I think one of the great things about doing Sarsen is that, in a sense, we slowly but surely lose some of that uh, sense of actually being in control and having that tight uh, notion.
in terms of uh, this uh, in Taoist thought, human beings uh, are in no way special. This is John Gray in his book called Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meanings, Meaning of Life. And uh, he has a Taoist quote in there, which I think fits with this. It, it goes, uh, it's Lao Tzu, uh, puts it. Heaven and earth are ruthless and treat the myriad creatures as straw dogs. The universe has no favourites and the human animal is not its goal. <coughs> and nor, by the way, is the happiness of the human animal uh, its goal. He says it's a process of endless change uh, with no goal uh, at all. We are all soft-bodied creatures born into this vast universe uh, that is subject to laws and circumstances utterly beyond our control. Our tenure here is brief. And we expect to be happy. And yet somehow there's something in the acceptance of this fragility uh, which relates, I think, deeply uh, to happiness. It's not impossible or anything like that. It's not an argu that's not the argument. Um, I, I think the very fragility uh, in which we live is a source of joy and of anxiety, of course, and much more. So I've, I've dwelt a little bit on um, power as what is taken. Um, but I guess my question is, what are the beneficial uses of power? I mean, this is not, not simple um, at all. And how does the need for control play out in friendships and relationships in your experience? It's all very well to... to, to lay out vast scenario, but a lot of this is interpersonal as well. Um, there are really difficult questions that arise. How does war, uh, even a just war, uh, square with taking up, taking up the precepts, uh, such as the precept of not killing? So I leave, the, leave you with the questions and, um, yeah, and let's have our uh, Dharma sharing. Thank you for your attention.